0: What an eventful week we've arrived at. Do you know what I mean, constant listeners? So first, I've got to wish you an early Merry Christmas to all. Please enjoy it with family and friends. And then second, happy winter to all, which we officially start in a couple of days. So I'm going to steal a line from the movie The Lord of the Rings. And so it begins, that long, dreary march towards spring. That's one of the reasons I guess we've got the far middle, to keep you fired and stoked through the gray and cold outside. We've been on a sports dedication theme over the past month or two of choosing individuals who achieved not just on field or in arena, but also in life beyond. We had Ted Williams and his combat tours. We had Niall Kinnick giving his life in service to his country, Archie Moore and his Any Boy Can effort. Well, we've got another type of individual in that lineage and in that line for episode 135's dedication today, a very worthy dedication subject and someone who 99% of sports fans never heard of, and someone who didn't do much of anything on the professional level of his sport, which was football. But this guy had his name and his jersey displayed in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. What? It's such a cool story, and it's a made-for-far-middle topic and dedication. His name is Leland Melvin. Originally, he's from Lynchburg, Virginia. And let me summarize his sports career before we get into his more impactful career you will be rightfully impressed with but first his football exploits they're nothing to sneeze at he achieved quite a bit especially on the collegiate level he was a wide receiver at the university of richmond from 82 to 85 and he sits first on richmond's career reception list with 198 receptions he was a team captain his senior season and his best performance was against the rival james madison where he had over 200 yards receiving and a touchdown and he was a steady performer He caught at least one pass in every game he played as a Richmond—do you know Richmond's nickname? As a Richmond Spider. His pro career was very short. He was picked by the Detroit Lions in the 11th round of the 1986 NFL Draft, but during training camp, he pulled a hamstring and he was released. He was later picked up by the Dallas Cowboys, but he pulled the hamstring a second time, which officially ended his professional football career. Now on his website, and he's got a really cool website, I'd encourage you to give it a look, Melvin tells the story of how he pulled the hamstring in front of legendary coach Tom Landry. So he never really played in the NFL regular season. And how does he end up then being part of the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio? Well, that's as the radio personality Paul Harvey would famously say, is the rest of the story. You see, the closing of that football chapter for Melvin, it opened a new, much more impactful chapter for him. Melvin was a serious student at Richmond, and he's got a bachelor's of science degree in chemistry and a master's degree in material science engineering. I love seeing that as a fellow engineer. And I believe he earned the master's degree at Virginia at UVA after his football days were over. So he ends up getting recruited by NASA to join the space agency and start working in fiber optics research. And then he applies within NASA for the astronaut corps and was selected after a lengthy process sometime in the late 1990s. So Melvin, he's in training for three years in the astronaut corps when this dedication story takes an unbelievable turn. When he's training in the neutral buoyancy lab, now that's that giant pool of water that simulates space floating that you see in the movies when astronauts are training. So he's in that neutral buoyancy lab. There's an equipment issue that caused Melvin to become deaf from the water pressure damaging his eardrums. And that injury and the resulting disability, it grounded his plans and chances for making it to space, or so it seemed. He stays with NASA after the incident, and he becomes a robotics expert. And eventually, wouldn't you know it, NASA grants him a waiver to be able to head to space. Melvin ends up flying two missions on the space shuttle Atlantis, and becomes a mission specialist on those voyages, and he performs work on the International Space Station. When it's all said and done, he logs over 500 hours in space. Now he has since authored books, and over time he was able to recover some of his hearing, which is great news. And now you know, again, channeling Paul Harvey one more time, the rest of the story of Leland Melvin. He's the only person drafted into the National Football League to have flown in space, made it to the Pro Football Hall of Fame by having his Detroit Lions jersey under glass there to honor his achievements off of the gridiron, and he's a worthy dedication for Far Middle episode 135. I've always been interested in space because of the science and the constant innovation found in the associated industries, but I never wanted to be an astronaut, just too much risk for me to life and limb, which leads to our first connection for this episode, how innovation and risk in the profession of astronaut they came together in the late 1960s during the Apollo space missions. So astronaut is what one would label as a dangerous profession, certainly one with material risk to loss of life. And as is often the case with people in dangerous professions, the Apollo astronauts found out that all those giant insurance companies, the ones who today they apply geckos and emus to their multi-million-dollar branding campaigns, Those companies were never going to be willing to issue life insurance policies to the astronauts that were not just prohibitively expensive. I mean, expensive to the point where the premiums were ridiculous. So rather than pay the crazy insurance premiums, the astronauts, they improvised and they innovated. They devised a plan, a genius system, to make sure that their families and wives and children would be financially taken care of in the not altogether unlikely event of a disaster. And a planet, interestingly, would create a nice financial windfall for the Apollo team if they made it back to Earth in one piece. That famous trio of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins, they were beyond celebrity. You have to remember this, uh, in the late 1960s, ultra, ultra-famous individuals. Everyone knew them, and their autographs were highly prized by space enthusiasts. So in the months leading up to the launch of Apollo 11, The crew devised quite the entrepreneurial opportunity. They spent much of their spare time, what little they had of it, autographing postage envelopes that were imprinted with Apollo images. Now, stamp collectors, you know what I'm talking about. They're called first day covers or FDCs in the hobby. They're regular envelopes that are then adorned with a silkscreen image or art to the left front of the envelope that will then have also a commemorative stamp and postmark on a date of interest in the upper right corner and they're collected usually for the the marking of a new stamp or a historic date so you've got buzz and neil and mike they're signing piles of these cool envelopes on the front before their mission and they actually managed to take just over 200 of them with them in the capsule for the actual voyage i'm not sure how they managed that and they entrusted the rest of them the rest of these envelopes with a friend who then dutifully visited a Texas post office on both launch day in July of 69, and again on the day that Apollo landed back safely to Earth a few days later. And on those days, the friend at the post office affixed a six-cent postage stamp to the envelopes and then had them postmarked with the historic date. So the trio, they make it back to Earth, and voila, instant sought-after collectible that people would be willing to pay big bucks for. Now, the envelopes were distributed among the astronauts' families with instructions to sell them if the crew was unable to return before the uh, the mission launched. And these envelopes would become to be known as insurance covers instead of first day covers. And it worked so well that not surprisingly, the tactic was reused for subsequent Apollo missions. Most of the covers were eventually given as follow-on gifts to uh, family and friends and associates over the years. And I'm sure every single one of those envelopes has its own unique story and chain of custody. And you can occasionally find them at space memorabilia auctions. And sometimes, depending on the envelope, they can sell for anywhere from $20,000 to upwards of $50,000. It's not a bad return on investment for those pioneers of the final frontier. Now, speaking of astronauts, remember when you were a kid? In an elementary school, the teacher would go around the room asking you and everyone else what you and they wanted to be when everybody grew up. An astronaut was always a popular selection. That nicely connects to our next topic, elementary school teachers and how they can have outsized impacts on humans throughout the rest of their lives. It's an inspiring story, and I can't trace back to source to verify, so I hope it's true. But even if it's not true, even if it's more of urban legend, it can still inspire teachers and individuals today. And the story apparently occurred somewhere in the mid to late 1960s. So one day a teacher asks her students to list the names of the other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a bit of a space between each name. And then she told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down next to their name. So it took the remainder of the class period to finish their assignment. And as the students left the room, each one handed in the papers to the teacher. That weekend, the teacher wrote down the name of each student on a separate sheet of paper and then listed what everyone else had said about that individual. So each student ended up getting their own sheet with what each person in the class said about them. On Monday, she gives each student his or her list. And before long, The entire class, after they're reading their list, they start smiling. So she starts hearing comments, things like, Really? I never knew that I meant anything to anyone. And she hears, I didn't know others like me so much. Those were the types of comments that were sort of floating around the room. Now, no one ever mentioned those papers in that class again, and she never knew if they discussed them after class or with their parents, but it didn't matter to her. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. And the students were happy with themselves and and with one another. So that group of students, they move on. Years later, one of the students ends up being killed in combat in Vietnam. And his teacher, a teacher that I was speaking about, goes to the funeral of the student. So the church was packed with friends and family. And she's standing there. And one of the soldiers who acted as a pallbearer comes up to her and says, were you Mark's math teacher? And she said, "Yep, I was I was his math teacher." And then the soldier says, "You know, Mark talked about you a lot, and we want to show you something." And this is his father now of the deceased who comes up to the teacher, and takes a wallet out of his pocket, and he says to the teacher, "They found this on Mark when he was killed. And we thought you might recognize it." And he opens up the uh, the wallet and he carefully removes two pieces, worn pieces of notebook paper, that have been taped and folded together over the years. And then the teacher knew right away what uh, what she was looking at, because that was the sheet of paper or papers that she had listed all the good things that each of Mark's classmates had said about him. And the uh, the mother of the deceased came up and thanked the teacher for doing that. And you can tell that my son treasured this. And then a lot of his classmates who were at the funeral as well that were in that class, they started to gather around the teacher and started to tell her about how they kept their lists as well. So was the story true? Like I said, I certainly hope that it was. And if I were an elementary school teacher today, I would copy that exact exercise with my class. And maybe a few constant listeners who are great teachers, and I know we've got a few of them out there that I'm personally aware of who are constant listeners, will do just that. That is an awesome exercise. And that story's connection to Vietnam and how that conflict, we lost a significant piece of that next generation into an ultimately doomed effort, it brings to mind another connection I'd like to make. And it's something that's a a bit frustrating to me. Yes, I need to connect for you to how a widely recognized objective authority of Encyclopedia Britannica, no less, views the topic of the Vietnam War. So if you go online and you search the Encyclopedia Britannica for Vietnam War timeline, an article in a timeline pops up. Now, this is going to be reviewed and consumed and referenced by who knows how many students and young adults is they research and learn and write about that popular historical topic. So here is what the Encyclopedia Britannica views as the major events worth mentioning during the U.S. direct involvement in the war. And I'm not excluding any major sections from that posting, by the way, during the following timeline. See what you think and whether you might sense a bit of a bias toward theme. So first, August 1964, U.S. claims one of its Navy ships, I believe it was the Maddox, was fired upon in the Gulf of Tonkin. That creates the Gulf of Tonkin incident, as it becomes known, which escalates matters greatly in the region. And Britannica points out that the alleged firing on the Navy ship never happened. Next entry, early 1968, the Tet Offensive, where the North and the Viet Cong get annihilated on the battlefield, but according to the encyclopedia, the American public doesn't buy into it and is unsupportive of the war. The next entry is February 68, 1968. Walter Cronkite, he goes on national TV and basically says America is at a bloody stalemate in Vietnam. The 1969 summary from the encyclopedia is about the national protests in the U.S. against the war. That's it for 1969 when it comes to Vietnam and that conflict, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. The next entry is for 1970, and it talks about the Kent State demonstration and the shooting of the students there. Nothing else on the Encyclopedia site for Vietnam War timeline until 1973, when the U.S. signs a treaty agreeing to leave and exit Vietnam. Now, that timeline that I just summarized for you, technically, It's accurate, and where there is inference or opinion, they're decently reasonable ones. But that timeline in total is extremely excessively, grossly misleading. Someone looking to the Encyclopedia Britannica is an objective source of fact and truth. They'll come away from that timeline thinking that the U.S. had to be the ineptest entity in the history of dealing with conflicts and the history of war and that the government ignored the will of the people from the get-go. Look, Vietnam was a dark episode in our history and far from our best movement, no doubt about that. Many troubling problems and painful memories. But Encyclopedia Britannica tells only part of the true story, and only the part that fits a narrative favored by the left. Frankly, it reads as if written by a communist and someone who holds a grudge against the United States. Tell the whole truth, Encyclopedia Britannica not selected pieces of it, to skew the uninformed looking to become informed. Those who served in Vietnam deserve at least that much, as do young students looking for objective and balanced resources to tell a complete story. Now, we've been speaking of school and students throughout this episode, so let's connect to something a local high school senior here in a Pittsburgh school district recently told me that I first laughed at and thought that she was kidding about. But then I learned she was absolutely correct. So one of the greatest things about the CNX Mentorship Academy, which is now in its third year with a class of over 80 students, by the way, is getting to spend time talking to that next generation. 18-year-olds, they can be quite communicative once they get comfortable around you. And anyway, about a week ago, one of the mentorship students and I were talking And when we were talking, she inadvertently yawned, and that's not uncommon for conversations that I hold with others. But she apologized when she yawned, and she said that she was up late at her work the night before, and then she got up at 6.30 in the morning that day to head to school. And then she said jokingly, at least I know I'm not yawning from sleepy sickness. Sleepy sickness? That's not a real thing, I said. Yes, it is, she assured me. And she told me how her great-grandmother told her about it when she was a kid and how it was an epidemic at one time in the past. So sure enough, I start to do some research, go down a rabbit hole, and sleepy sickness is and was a real thing. It was a very big thing back in the 1920s and during the Great Depression in the 1930s. Encephalitis lethargica, as it is technically known, which literally means inflammation of the brain that makes you tired. It was a mysterious epidemic disease in the 20s and 1930s and was better known as the sleepy or sleeping sickness. And it was associated with the subsequent development of Parkinson's. And it was a condition that was sort of captured in a movie, Awakenings, around 1990 or so that uh, that talks about this actual affliction. Now, it was first identified in 1917 At a meeting of the Vienna Society for Psychiatry and Neurology, it was described as patients exhibiting a kind of sleeping sickness with an unusually prolonged course. Young people, and particularly women, were the most vulnerable to the disease, although it did affect people of all ages, and the first signs were typically a sore throat and a fever that was accompanied by a headache, but then these discomforts, they soon developed into more alarming problems, such as double vision and severe weakness. Within hours, most of the victims were gripped by episodes of tremors and strange bodily movements and intense muscle pains and delayed mental response. Behavioral changes often appeared, including psychosis and hallucinations, and then that was followed by steady and increasing drowsiness and and just being sort of lethargic. Many became comatose and completely unresponsive. Now, this state could rapidly lead to death, or could persist for long periods of time. And these signs were generally accompanied by paralysis in some of the cranial nerves, especially those affecting the eye. Pretty nasty. So the disease then began appearing in increasing frequency throughout the world with a possible total mortality of 500,000 cases during the entire epidemic period, which lasted until about 1940. And this disease arrived in the shadow of the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, which killed, by the way, an estimated 50 million people worldwide. So this sort of sleepy sickness has been largely overlooked by history, even though it took the lives of perhaps over a million people in total and left countless others frozen inside unresponsive bodies. So you thought COVID was bad. How about back-to-back bouts with the Spanish flu and sleepy sickness back then, and without the benefits of modern medicine? Now, as the 1930s started, as suddenly as it had appeared, the sleepy sickness epidemic was gone. Although new cases stopped being reported, there were thousands of affected who were housed in institutions for decades. They were alive, but they were trapped within useless bodies. And sporadic reports of sleepy sickness cases have continued to appear since then. So it's a legitimate thing, constant listeners. But even after a 100 years... Many issues related to sleepy sickness remain elusive, and doctors are still struggling to answer the question, what causes it, and how is this disease transmitted? Could an epidemic of sleepy sickness happen again? Yeah, sleepy sickness, it's a real thing, and it's one of the reasons why you listen to The Far Middle to learn about these things. Hey, let's connect from sleepy sickness to what most people desire to hear when trying to sleep, the sound of silence. Now, The Sound of Silence is a song released in 1965 by Simon and Garfunkel, of course, became a smash hit worldwide, made it to the top 10 in the United States, the UK, Australia, Germany, the Netherlands, and Japan. And in 2012, the song was added to the National Recording Registry in the Library of Congress for being culturally important. Created by Art Garfunkel and Paul Simon, the song has an interesting story behind it, one that concerns Art Garfunkel and his close friend, Sandy Greenberg. Now, according to Greenberg, the song was a tribute to his strong bond with Garfunkel and the latter's friendship and kindness, which ended up providing comfort to Greenberg when he lost his sight. Greenberg and Garfunkel, they met in their first week of classes at Columbia University. It was Garfunkel who initiated the contact, coming over to say hi. And soon the two became friends and roommates and they found that they shared a common interest in both music and poetry. And the two young men made a pact to always be there for each other when faced with trouble. So just months later, in 1960, Greenberg, he lost his sight. He was watching a baseball game when he experienced his vision becoming cloudy, and soon he could only see darkness. And although the doctors said that he was just suffering from a short-term issue and that the blindness would soon pass, it didn't. And it was later found that glaucoma had destroyed Greenberg's optic nerves. And since Greenberg came from simple means, his family didn't have the money to help him out much. And as such, the young man dropped out of Columbia, dropped out of college. So following emergency surgery for glaucoma, a failed operation in 1961 uh, didn't repair Greenberg's sight. And instead, it left him completely blind. But Garfunkel... Not only convinced his buddy, who was depressed and unwilling to return to school, to come back to Columbia, he turned into Greenberg's inseparable guide. He read him textbooks aloud, and he basically became his eyes. So Greenberg says, it lifted me out of the grave. He told uh, People Magazine that in an interview, and he also, by the way, wrote a memoir, and the uh, memoir is titled Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend, which I'll get to in a minute. That's a reference to the opening lines of that Simon and Garfunkel hit, The Sound of Silence. So psychologically, Greenberg was really seriously depressed. And he stopped talking to people and he isolated himself off from the world. And it was then that Garfunkel came to him and taught Greenberg into going back to Columbia. And after much insistence from Garfunkel, Greenberg agreed and he enrolls back into the university. And in college, Greenberg, he becomes completely dependent on Garfunkel, and Garfunkel basically changed his life at college to accommodate his blind friend. He'd help him walk to class. He'd help him sort of recoup from surgery when he had surgeries. He'd walk with him through the city. He'd fill out forms for him, all that stuff. So Garfunkel started to joke with Greenberg and would call Greenberg darkness when he was around him as a way to sort of provide some comical relief to his buddy. So one day Garfunkel tells his friend Greenberg or Darkness, he says, we're going to go to Grand Central Station. They get to Grand Central Station in the middle of all that you know, hubbub and people milling around. And Garfunkel says to his friend he has to immediately leave for some sort of an emergency. And that's it. So suddenly Greenberg, he's left alone in the crowd of Grand Central Station, completely terrified, not knowing what to do. He can't see a thing. And he somehow manages to get back to Columbia, bumping into people and things and all this trial and error, terrible experience. He calls it the worst couple of hours in my life. Now, back at the college, Greenberg, he bumps into a man who apologized to him. He recognizes the voice. It was his friend, Garfunkel, who had just left a few hours back for that emergency or urgent assignment. But in fact, Garfunkel never left Greenberg's side. He merely lied about it and followed his friend all the way back to college, to the campus, to make sure that he was okay. And Garfunkel wanted Greenberg to realize that he could only be independent when he was truly in charge of his life. So it worked. Greenberg became more confident about relying on himself, and the two friends graduated from college, and they went their separate ways. But now it's time, again, channeling Paul Harvey, which seems to be the theme in some ways for episode 135, the rest of the story. Greenberg, he goes on to earn an MBA, a PhD from Harvard. He serves in the Johnson administration, LBJ, before leading a life as an accomplished inventor, businessman, and philanthropist. So he makes it big. But before Greenberg makes it big, and just after college, something else happened of note between Garfunkel and Greenberg. So a few years after college, I believe in 1964, Greenberg receives a call from Garfunkel. And Garfunkel is asking to borrow $400 so he can record an album with his musician friend, Paul Simon. Now, Greenberg just had over $400 in his entire bank account, but he didn't even hesitate, gave all the money to Garfunkel without a second thought. He felt that it was time to repay the kindness that Garfunkel had shown to him during college. And with the money, with the loan, Simon and Garfunkel, they record their first album Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. in 1964. Now, the album initially turned out to be a flop, but there was one song on that album that stood out, The Sound of Silence. And in fact, I think originally it was titled The Sounds of Silence, and then it was retitled The Sound of Silence. In the following year, Song Rockets goes to the number one spot. And I believe there's two versions of the song. There's an acoustic original version on that first album and then more of a, uh, a, a remixed version that made it uh, to number one. And though Simon Paul Simon wrote the lyrics to the song. If you listen to the opening lyrics to the sound of silence, you can sort of sense and pick up Garfunkel's relationship and compassion that he showed to his friend darkness. So once uh, that uh, Greenberg was afflicted with his blindness, the song's opening lines to the sound of silence. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Now, Simon and Garfunkel, of course, they go on to have huge careers. And Sandy, he ends up donating $3 million to find a cure for blindness. And in 2012, he announces the Greenberg Prize, which is that $3 million effort investment to go to scientists who contributed the most toward the cause of ending blindness. And Art Garfunkel, by the way, he is godfather to Greenberg's three kids. Now, 90% of what I relayed is fact-checked as true. There is a debate about whether or not the punchline of the story, which ironically is the opening lyric line in The Sound of Silence, was inspired by Sandy and Art. Some say that's highly questionable because Art didn't write those lyrics. Again, Paul Simon penned the lyrics to The Sound of Silence. So some say the song is about the JFK assassination, and others say, of course, that opening line, Hello, darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again, is about Art Garfunkel's relationship and friendship with Sandy Greenberg. So I guess only Art and Paul can clear up the mystery for sure, but they may not even remember at this point, now that it was released, that song and those lyrics, over 55 years ago. What do you think? Well, it's time to sign off for this week. And instead of the sound of silence, go fill your ears with the sound of holiday cheer. Merry Christmas, everybody.